Hello, and welcome to Dragon's Demise, a podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. I am joined, as always, by Greg. Hey there. And today, we will be reviewing Splendor. But before that, let's talk about what we've been playing. Let's do that, because this episode isn't going to air until Thursday, after the election is mercifully over. But we are recording on Monday, and so to get into the spirit of things, we decided to play Campaign Manager 2008, Mm -hmm. which is a, some would say accurate, some would probably say less accurate, distillation of the 2008 election cycle. And I think it was very interesting. You know, you had the swing states, you had the key demographics, primary issues, defense, economics, which was a, a radical simplification, but... When people talk about sort of the two parties, you know, Republicans tend to be strong on defense, Democrats tend to be stronger on economic issues and and social welfare, those sorts of things. So I thought it was a great representation, maybe not the most accurate, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was was pretty interesting, actually. I enjoyed trying it out and seeing how the game balanced itself and how you had to go from having the different states that were at first aligned with one of the candidates and then uh, b- both sides trying to win them over. Like I definitely won at least campaigning for McCain. I won at least one blue state, whereas you definitely won at least a few red states. Right. And it's it's a very interesting mechanic that even though they're at the beginning skewed in one way, there are like a few different events and things like that, news stories that eventually actually literally gave you the win. They did. They, there was one breaking news event. That literally just said, all the undecided voters in this particular state become blue voters. And there's another card in the deck that does the same for red, but that didn't actually come up during Mm -hmm. the course of the game. So I just got that huge boon, right? I think that was the last state that put me over 270, and you just got hosed. Which I think one of the things that's really successful about this game is that it does capture the sheer magnitude of what's happening like there's only four states in play at any given time Mm -hmm. and there's only two issues and there's only you know two different key demographics in each state which is a massive simplification Mm -hmm. but you have the cards in your hand you have to worry about what states there are what issues there are what the key demographic is and i think it does a pretty good job of modeling just the chaos that's involved in these sorts of elections It is definitely a very controlled chaos, I think. Agreed. As you would expect the election to be, because this is a pretty heavy strategy game. Mm -hmm. The only luck, really, that you're looking at is what card you're drawing, and you only have a 15-card deck. So it's a pretty easy game to know what are your chances of getting a certain thing once you know what deck you have, and especially because you're creating the deck at the beginning. And it's that kind of thing where this has a bit of randomness, but for the most part, the luck is in when you play something and a little bit of the news events. Other than that, it's, you know, I know that I have this in my deck, so I'm going to try to play this, and hopefully he doesn't have that, or and, and that kind of thing. And it's definitely a very strategic game. Absolutely. And like you said, apart from which cards you happen to draw at the right time, mm-hmm. there's really not a lot of luck. It's all about strategic targeting and kind yeah. of being able to push your advantage while minimizing your opponent's. Yep. After that, we got to play Evolution Climate. Right, which is the new... It's not an expansion. It's actually its own standalone game. Mm-hmm. So this is actually pretty interesting because when I was back in the Kickstarter, it has a few different options that you could do. You could either buy the full standalone game or you could even buy a conversion kit for your original Evolution. 
Interesting. In order to use that and like transform it into evolution climate. You know, this is kind of an outsider's observation since you own these games and I actually don't. But the the people who manufacture evolution have seemed like they've been pretty on top of the kickstarting and how to integrate their new products with their previous products and how to drive consumer engagement with the you know the design your own card contests and those sorts of things and i've been continually very impressed from the outside looking in at what sort of success they've had yeah they're actually as a company and everything the way that the kickstarters have come out and like honestly the quality of the components and the art and everything like that i i was just looking at the board that's the climate board in this game really looks beautiful it does and then you have the climate cards themselves and i love how the backs of the cards literally blend into the the artwork it's literally part of the artwork that just like there's no edges no nothing like that it just looks exactly we almost forgot to pack one of them because it was (laughs) sitting on top of the uh the board it's very seamless yeah and it's really nice and as always the beautiful artwork from i've from evolution continues into this and I think it added a lot of much-needed refinements. Agreed. So where there was definitely like one or two strategies that were really, really pretty much impossible to beat in Evolution, as we talked about in our review, mm-hmm. this one has the counterbalances to those. So instead of just having to go up to you know defensive herding at 6-6 six, six of body size and population... Now that could be a detriment if the climate gets hot because then you're losing a ton of population each turn Mm -hmm. unless you have certain traits that will prevent that. And so I think that that just adds a lot of balancing mechanisms to the game which it didn't have before and which I think is sorely needed. Agreed. It creates another layer of complexity which on the surface of it seems like, okay, this is just another thing to consider. But once you actually get in and start playing and you realize... Um, throughout the course of our game, actually, mm-hmm. you pointed out that you weren't able to focus on a purely defensive strategy, which allowed my carnivore to mm-hmm. just eat you turn after turn because you had to be considering the climate. Yeah. So this new system that they've implemented that would otherwise be in a vacuum actually has a reverse ripple effect throughout the mm-hmm. other you know, strategies in the game, and it, it's very elegantly created. And I mean, you played almost this entire game as a carnivore. I think I started on turn two, yeah. Yeah. And you were very viable as a carnivore. There was not a, really a single turn that you starved. Mm-hmm. There was one turn that you had to eat one of your own creatures. But other than that, you were fine. Yeah. Uh, versus in most cases that I've played the regular evolution or even evolution flight, it's always been the carnivore gets destroyed very easily. They don't have any food. It's the kind of thing that you pop into being carnivore and then have to know when to transition out. Right. Right, and this kind of balances that effect where being a carnivore long-term is actually viable as long as you have the herbivores who are susceptible to the climate to focus on. Mm -hmm. And I'd be interested to see how it plays with more players. We had three in our game, and I imagine that there would be, with more players, more carnivores on the field, which would give you some competition for food, which would also create more adverse circumstances. But also, one of the climate cards that we got at the very beginning, the Volcano, that really helped you and Meg. It did. Because both of you had larger body sizes. And I was trying to go, and I was trying to push for the heat. And because of that, I was staying with a small body size, which allowed you to eat me much more easily. But when the volcano hit, it all shifted back into the cold area. 
So I had to then quickly adapt to keep myself from uh, freezing to death. Whereas you guys were already ready, but had that kept going and been into something else that didn't shift us back to cold, you would have been in trouble being oh, yeah. a large carnivore in the tropics. Right, because I had rushed large body size and I was going to start taking population hits each turn mm-hmm. or else I was going to have to do what you did and make concessions in terms of my efficiency mm-hmm. in order just to survive. So yeah, the the climate event cards do have a major impact on how they go, which is you know, a little bit of a, a detriment, I would say, for people who don't like the sort of randomness mm-hmm. roll of the dice type situation. But then again, the game is about adaptation and evolution, and it, it certainly fits the bill. And also, the nice part about them is that two of them are revealed at the very beginning, and until you trigger them, they're revealed and you see them. You, you can plan what you want to do. So like, even though I, I knew what was coming when, when the volcano happened, I just thought that I would be able to knock it back to the other side again. But then I got certain cards and was able to move myself to the other strategy. But I think it really does improve and iterate upon the whole evolution formula. Agreed. So, you played recently Voyage of the Beagle. I did. Some friends and I were brave enough. We, we put on our explorer's pants and ventured back into Robinson Crusoe's expansion Voyage of the Beagle. I believe I've mentioned this previously on the podcast in the context of it kicking my ass. But we decided to try again, so we played the first scenario, and the Voyage of the Beagle, unlike original Robinson Crusoe, actually takes place as a series of campaigns. So there's five missions, and each of them are connected to one another. So the first scenario, you're collecting specimens, and that can be anything from rare beasts to carnivorous plants to fossils. You're collecting these in order to gain knowledge points, and at the end of all five scenarios, your knowledge points are your score. So you're trying to maximize your knowledge while also staying alive. And we we actually did really, really well. In order to advance to the next scenario, you need a minimum of 16 KP. The first time we played, we made it to the final turn with, I believe, 14, Mm -hmm. which is obviously below the threshold. This time we made it with 44. Um, So we were able to get to sort of a higher tier, Mm -hmm. which gives you bonuses in the later game. (laughs) But... And this is where a closer reading of the rules would have come in handy. While we knew that the scenarios were connected into a campaign, we didn't realize that the exact game state is preserved, including your current health levels, your current resources, and your current explored tiles and inventions. So it's the last turn of scenario one, and we're like, Let's go ham and just get as much knowledge as possible. We don't need to worry about feeding ourselves or taking damage. We powered through. We got the last bit. And then we look at the rules and go, oh, crap. (laughs) We lost the second scenario in six out of eight turns. We just, we, we died. We lost too many hearts. You could never recover from that. We never recovered from that YOLO moment in the first scenario. So now that I know better, Mm. eventually we will venture back into the the campaign and try it again. And hopefully this time I'll be there too. Yes, hopefully. You can be a voice of reason. I'm I'm sure that would have helped us out considerably. Well, we'll see you next time. But for now, that's what we've been playing. We come now to our review of Splendor, where we'll be sure to take a look at all the facets. Yep. I'm very sorry for that pun, but it was just too good to pass up. 
<laughs> As you should expect by now, we try to be very punny all we the do. time. We do. But, but Splendor. <laughs> yes. So Splendor is a game in which you try to control a gem market and be the first person to earn 15 points. Mm-hmm. It can play up to four players, two to four. And on your turn, you can do one of three different things. Mm-hmm. You can purchase a holding. Holdings can be mines, which are tier ones, merchants, which are tier two, or markets, which are tier three. And the tiers generally correspond to more expensive but also higher point values. Mm-hmm. You can reserve a holding, which puts it face down next to your pile, and then no one else can build it, and only you can build it once you've accumulated those resources. Reserving also gets you a writ of credit which can be spent as any color of gem. And then the final thing that you can do on your turn is take gems. There are five different colors of gems, black, white, green, red, and blue. And when you take gems, you can take either one of each of three different colors or two of one color, but only if there are at least four remaining in that color's stack. Yes, and the stacks of the gems actually differ in how many there are depending on how many players you have. Right. A two-player game only has up to four in each stack at any time. That is the maximum. So that's very different feel and different use of that mechanic than a four-player game, which has all of the gems. And usually there's at least one stack that has four or more that you could use. Mm -hmm. So the gameplay itself is based around those mechanics. You get different points for the properties that you get so you get them the tier ones usually have no points except for the few that cost four of one kind of gem and those are those give you one point the tier twos are the are the ones that have either two or three points normally and they cost a bit more than the tier ones you usually need to have some tier ones before you can get into the tier twos though you can actually get tier twos without a single tier one is just a little bit harder one of the things we didn't mention a little bit earlier is that you can only have up to 10 gems in your tableau area. Right, which makes going up, sort of progressing through the tiers, all the more important mm-hmm. because each of the holdings that you acquire has a particular gem color associated with it, and that gives you permanent discounts on all purchases related to that color. Yeah. So if you get three blues in your holdings and then you have two blue gems in your stash... You can then buy another holding that costs up to five gems. Yep. Five blue gems, particularly. That way, it's definitely a little bit of an engine building kind of thing because you're going to try to build your own tableau of cards and like gems and just your stash in general. And that's going to help you bounce to the higher levels of purchases. The other thing that you can do to get points is also court the pretty much the royalty or like the really important people. Right. There. I think the the little tokens that represent those VIPs, mm-hmm. the patrons, are actually based on historical figures. Like, I'm pretty sure one of those is Catherine de Medici. It's very likely. I mean, this seems to have a little bit of that theme, at least. And Jacob doesn't like the theme. We'll get into that later. Yes, so we will. But these all are based on how many of the actual properties you have. So you can't just buy the VIPs. You have to entice them to come to you by owning a certain number or a certain combination of holdings. So, for example, it could be one person needs for you to have four 
diamond holdings and for emerald holdings in order for them to join you and give you the three points that, that they are worth. Right. And that way you're just building up the points through the cards, through the four VIPs that are visible at the top until someone has 15 points. Mm-hmm. And there are more VIPs than will ever appear in a single game. It actually, that's another thing that scales with players. Uh, I believe it's the number of players plus one. And there are nine VIPs total representing a different combination of holdings. So you never know what's going to come out. And sometimes you could get things that have really strong synergy Mm -hmm. where one person has, if you get three blue, three black, and three white, and another person has, if you get three black, three white, and three red, So you can Mm -hmm. really look for ways to amplify the effect of acquiring your holdings, but that's not always going to be the case, so you can't bank on that strategy. Yeah, but it's definitely something that you really have to take into account when you're playing the game. You have to look at those VIPs. You have to look at how much and what types of gems they each need because the more synergies you get, the quicker you're able to get to that point to get those VIPs on your side and also to start buying up more and more of these holdings in order to get to the 15 points. Mm -hmm. But there are also elements of sort of action economy involved Mm -hmm. in the game. Like you mentioned, the tier one holdings are obviously very cheap, but many, if not most of them, don't give any points at all. Mm -hmm. So you can purchase up, you know, one of those every other turn, every two turns, in order to be the first to snag the patrons. But then that doesn't do you any good because now you've got two patrons for six points and no points in your holdings. So you're probably not going to make it to victory, mm-hmm. even though you snagged those and denied them to other people. Those other people may have done a better job of picking up the efficient tier one holdings mm-hmm. and catapulting those into tier twos, tier threes. It's really not the best economy of holdings. It's better to try to find the best synergies between the cards that are on the table that have the points and the VIPs as almost like an added benefit. Right. So the action economy is definitely very important as is the pivot of your strategy because you have to know when to go from buying the free now tier one holdings to buying tier two and tier three holdings and how you're going to pivot whether you're going to pivot into the tier two and then into the tier three maybe for like one holding or something like that for your like final points or if you're going to you know, go ham at the bottom doing the tier ones until you have enough to go to the tier threes and just like buy up the the big holdings. It's different strategies you can use, but you have to know how to pivot your strategy in the middle of the game. Right. And that's one of the things that I really appreciate about it is that there's no sort of built-in impetus in the game that says, hey, you should be doing this now. It's very self-driven. You make the decision, okay, This is where I'm going to start converting my engine to go for the more expensive but more valuable cards. Mm -hmm. Or you don't do that. You try to capitalize on a a quick rush strategy, and sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Mm -hmm. But one of the other things that we mentioned but haven't really talked about a whole lot is reserving. Yes, Reserving can be very strategic because the coins that you have, the holdings that you have, are public information. Mm -hmm. If you, at the beginning of the game, set your sights on a particular tier three, say it costs seven diamonds and four rubies and three emeralds. Mm -hmm. It's a really expensive card. You know that you're going to have to build for it. So you do. You start to build for it. The other players are going to see you doing that. They're going to know what you're going for. And if they reserve it before you do, Mm -hmm. then you've just wasted 
a significant amount of time for something that's never going to pay off. And maybe it's never going to pay off for them either, but they only had to invest one turn to take mm-hmm. that from you. Yeah. So along those lines, it's very important to actually take gems that could be used in multiple ways. So yes. it's similar to actually when we were talking about Via Nebula, it has that kind of, I'm going to be able to use these rubies in these two different cards, not just this one. And then each one has a slightly different cost, so you have like a few specialized gems. But if you're not like thinking about two completely different sets, then you have a little bit of synergy. You can actually try to pivot even within that when someone reserves the card that you want or when someone does take something else. Right. So. It's absolutely a game that rewards smart play rather mm-hmm. than picking a strategy at the beginning and try to brute force it. Adaptability is very much the name of the game because you have to be able to respond when people reserve the thing that you were going for or when people exhaust the supply of gems that you needed to buy the thing that you had your eye on. And by respond, Greg does not mean, damn you for taking my gems, I mean, but actually switching your strategy. I kind of mean both, but yes, within the context of the game, switching your strategy is probably more important if less satisfying. True. But for all these positive things that I have to say and that Jacob has somehow managed to find to say... No game is perfect, and I know, Jacob, you wanted to talk about this. Yeah, so the first thing that I'm going to talk about is the actual pivot. So the idea, the scaling of the the game going from the Tier 1 to Tier 2 to Tier 3, I think it's pretty misaligned. Like, there are definite issues there. Getting to that third row is difficult, and... I've really barely seen people get there. They get there for like the last one gem that they need or something like that to just push them over the top. And it's not really, it's a non-player in that way. And the other thing with that concept is you can literally lose the game based on your action one turn. One turn, you miss time when your pivot is and you're gone. Because the other people have just like bounced above you and just taken all the momentum. And it, it can be very difficult in that way. You, you take an extra turn, an extra two turns taking the wrong cards, and you're out for the rest of the game, pretty much. Right. Those are things I definitely agree with, especially with the, the point about the Tier 3 cards never coming up. I think I've only ever seen people purchase Tier 3 holdings in a minority of games that I've played, and I have only ever purchased them maybe single-digit number of times. And you've played the game quite a few times, so that's saying something. Right, right. Yeah, no, this isn't a game that I've only played five times, and I've only purchased one. Uh, It is a very quick game, Mm -hmm. so I've played a lot of games of this, and it's just a very small percentage of them where anyone effectively manages to to get to the Tier 3 holdings. Mm -hmm. So the next thing that I want to talk about is the theme. So as... I mentioned earlier, and Greg pointed out that I am not a fan of this. Like, not that I don't like gems or anything. I have a rock collection scattered around my apartment. It I really love does. that. But that might even be one of the reasons that I don't like this as much because it really just has no theme. It's completely pasted on. Like, there would be so many other things that would be better. Like, you're you're purchasing holdings using gems you're purchasing mines using the gems that you you acquire it's not like you know getting the wood and gold or other things like that in order to 
to get this. Just the theme just does not fit for me. And I agree. I am a sucker for theme. There's definitely an element of incongruousness. Mm-hmm. You know, like you pointed out, you're you're using gems to buy mines to get the gems that you're using. I guess maybe there's collateral involved. Yeah. I don't know exactly what it is, but there's sort of an element of, you know, the mechanics drive this game. Yeah. And then theme, as interesting as it is, because I too love gems and, you know, go to the Smithsonian gemology exhibit all the time and all those sorts of things, and it's very pretty and the art is lovely, but it doesn't feel like it quite connects with the mechanics of the game. So the theme is pretty weak, and I just don't like games that you don't have that much interaction with other people. And this one, you have interaction to a degree by you know reserving the things and you're trying to predict what other people are doing but for the most part you're trying to just get what you think is the best and like the last time i played it very rarely did anyone actually get in the other person's way maybe once or twice did that happen and it just is very much more of an individual game and your individual like engine building than uh, with a few like chinks like thrown in the in the cogs rather than a game where you're actually interacting very well with other people right and this may actually be one of the core sources of our disagreement because i actually very much enjoy the sort of you know stay in your lane minimal interaction gameplay where everyone's playing the same game and just trying to be the best at it Mm -hmm. without actively screwing each other over like I always bring up the example of Dominion. If a witch hits the board, I will veto it instantly because I hate when people are out to get you. And I would much rather have a game where you just have the same tools available to you and whoever uses them most effectively comes out on top. But I do recognize that for some people that that is a turnoff. Yeah, and I just, I'd much rather have a more social game where even if I am, you know, trying to attack you or trying to you know, mess with your plan in some other way. I just think that that is more fun when you have that kind of player interaction than just doing your own thing. Fair enough. Well, with that in mind, let's do formal reviews. Jacob, where do you fall? This is going to be my first skip it. And I know that it's going to be an unpopular opinion because I am the only person in our whole gaming group, I think, that really dislikes this game i think that's probably true so i understand that a lot of people like it i played it quite a few times but right now i'd just about play rather play any other game on my bookshelf than pick this one up Mm -hmm. so i don't think it's necessary to play and just skip it fair enough i think you're wrong but i will be the bigger man and i will avoid ostracizing you for it uh this is actually a buy it from me i think that just based on you know my small sampling size of the the gaming group that we regularly interact with everyone except for jacob loves this game and we've gotten literally hours probably between the you know couple dozen of us we've probably gotten weeks worth of gameplay Mm -hmm. out of just this one game the games go by so quickly and it's so easy to just segue straight into another one that you can look up from the clock and you realize oh, we've been doing this for three hours, and I love that sort of addictive get-into-it gameplay. See, after one game, I'm just like, okay, I'm done. Next game, please. But Different strokes. The ironic part is that I'm the one who introduced the game to our gaming group. 
It actually is one of the first games that I bought, and right now, I just wouldn't play it. Well, you know, opinions change. Exactly. You evolve as a gamer, mm-hmm. and here you are. Yeah. But for those of you who are interested in playing, obviously there's our review, but there are other games that are similar to this that maybe you could check this one out if you like those. Via Nebula, we mentioned during our review of Via Nebula that this was like it, in the sense that you have these communal resources and also communal victory conditions. So mm-hmm. you're using chips on the board in order to buy holdings from the board, and whoever's the first person to do that, or whoever's the person to do that most effectively, is going to come out on top. So elements of Via Nebula there. Yep. And then also Machikora, especially if you're talking about, about Machikora with the expansions, and because then you have the randomness of the cards, just like you have the randomness in the decks, so you don't know exactly what's coming up, Right. versus a game like Dominion, which you still buy the things and you build your tableau or deck. But... In Machikoro, you're building your tableau, just like in Splendor, and you're trying to get that as efficient, as like broad of a net while trying to get to a certain goal as possible, and I think it has a very similar type of feel in that way. And then finally, Mystic Veil, very much in the sense of you have tiers of cards, formal laid out tiers of cards, where you've got the tier one, tier two, tier three, and there's a very definitive, if self-driven, progression through those tiers where you start out with the small cards, the cheap cards, and use those to build a bigger, better, stronger engine and buy, you know, the game-ending tier three cards. Yes, that's what we think, and we hope you enjoy the review. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Dragon's Demise. We hope you enjoyed. Please check out our YouTube channel where we'll be cross-posting episodes of the podcast as they air and also bringing you some original video content. Join us next week when we will be reviewing Scoville.